3: Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Roy Brown, who sat in a rather snowy, chilly Toronto. Today, I'm joined by Corey Bretschneider, who is a historian and writer of American politics. Corey has a new book out. It's called The Oath and the Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. Hello, Corey. How are you? Okay, sorry. I'm terrific.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Great deal.
0: Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United
2: States until our country's representatives can
0: figure out what the hell is going on. We have
2: no choice. We have... No
3: choice. I got this big book sent to the post okay. from your people. Um, it's a weighty tome. How do you go about putting together such a book? And then here's a provocative question for you: Do sure. we need another book about the office of the presidency?
1: I guess the history of the book might might answer the deeper question as well. Mm-hmm. I, when President Trump. Uh, began to run for president and was making a series of proposals. I wrote a piece for Politico uh, with the title, Trump versus the Constitution, a guide. And the idea was to really go through piece by piece what he was saying and proposing and explaining why it wasn't just a violation of the Constitution, the things that he was proposing. So things like the uh, commitment to shut down all Muslim immigration to the United States, the proposal to uh, torture the Uh, families of suspected terrorists, not just the suspected terrorists themselves. And the idea was to go proposal by proposal and explain, clause by clause, why this was a violation of the Constitution. But the point was more than that. It was to suggest that this was somebody in his disposition, not just in his proposals, that was really hostile to the very idea of the office, the idea of the oath of office, uh, which, after all, is a commitment to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, so I think a lot of people pointed out why he was immoral, uh, why he wasn't a great leader, but I, I guess at least at the time this was I think one of the first pieces at least to really dissect why it was a violation of the Constitution and I guess I think the other deeper point is that you know even though that that sort of language is there in the first second in office, preserve, protect, mm-hmm. and defend the Constitution, that isn't really the way that we talk about modern presidents and and if you look at most presidential historians, if you look at what people say about presidencies and evaluate evaluating them, I don't think that the usual thing is to put the Constitution first. And yet that is supposed to be the definition of what it means to faithfully uh, respect the office.
2: I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God.
3: Do you think the average American is really au fait with the nuance? Not just, not the tenets, but with the nuance of the American Constitution. I'm going to phrase that a, a little bit, sure. here, or I'm going to expand expand on my point. Sure. So this is a conversation which I frequently have with Americans, and I right. talk about how exceptional America is, and right. no Brit, no Brit, is okay with any bit of the British Constitution because, technically speaking, we don't have one. Right. you right. just you're just British. Uh, no German. Right is au fait with the German constitution, you're just German. No Italian, no. You know, the, the amount of countries throughout the world that have a constitution which defines nationality you can literally count on the fingers of one hand you 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 you're just brazilian you don't have to mm. believe in the tenets of of, of the constitution and and, mm. and for me somebody like president trump is just an exemplar of that he's just, in a way he's denying american exceptionalism he's just saying america is just like anywhere else in the world uh, if you're canadian you're just canadian um, to, to hell with the, with the, with the nuance of, of the Constitution, with the oath of office, we're just Americans. And in a way, that's right. incredibly normal, looked at the whole world <laughs> over. Yeah, I
1: mean, I guess um, there are aspects of the exceptional parts of American constitutionalism that, I, uh, that, that are problematic and some that I want to defend. And to me, the, mm-hmm. the main benefit that I think actually the rest of the world should learn from Uh, is the idea that you're not American based on ethnicity, based on blood, and the idea in particular that he has recently proposed getting rid of, that if you're born in this country, you are an American, regardless of whether your parents were here legally, illegally, whether you're here multiple generations or just for a few minutes. Uh, That, to me, goes to the core of the American constitutional creed, which is about uh, equal protection of the law, that we don't, and this is the break from monarchy, that we don't have a system of blood uh, status, that we reject the idea that who your parents are define your rights in any way. And those are things actually that to me are fundamental to the idea, not just of American constitutionalism, but, but democracy, and that really you are missing in parts of the world where you could be four generations within the borders of a country and yet not have citizenship. And so I think that his racism and his anti-constitutionalism sort of fit together in a way that I, I find deeply problematic. I mean, the, the ideal of the office, the way you know George Washington understood it, for instance, or Madison in the early Republic, isn't just that the Constitution's a set of laws, but it's that it's a set of values. And those are the mm-hmm. values that I very much want to defend. Primarily, the value of equal protection. Uh, enshrined in the Fourteenth Amendment, but certainly present before that in the Declaration of Independence, the idea that you can criticize a president—that this isn't an office that sort of attaches to the to a kind of immunity from criticism—the um, idea of religious freedom, all of these things uh, that are in many ways exceptionalists—I so agree with that—are to me great, not just a, a problem, and and what and they define the office as well. You know, the idea of a presidency really is. Uh, If America is exceptional in its constitutional protections, well, then the office of presidency is unique, too. And the commitment, I think, to honor those specific things. So, uh, you know, sometimes American exceptionalism means, uh, you know, a sort of entitlement to grandiosity to try to lead lead the uh, Mm -hmm. world in military affairs. That's not the version of it that I want. But the idea that we protect all forms of free speech or that we don't have an established religion or that we're equal at birth. That I very much do want oh, to
3: defend oh, as the oh, president. Oh, okay, defend. Corey, let let us try and unpick un- uh, some of those points sure, that sure. Uh, you you've uh, laid out there. First off, it's called the Oath and the Office, your book. So the yep. the Oath is obviously something which you see as incredibly central uh, yes. to the role of the president. It's his promise, his pledge to the nation. Right. Um, why is Washington's second inaugural? Why is that so important? Obviously, it was you know one of the shortest. It's only 135 words. Um, <laughs> why is this viewed in stark contrast to the one that came before?
1: Uh, There is a, I mean, I think you find it in the first inaugural too, but the second really does it in the best possible way. It puts the focus on the idea that the person, the man, George Washington, is not the office, and that the office in many ways is above uh, whoever occupies it at any particular time. The office is defined by the need to respect the rights enshrined in the Constitution. And what he says in that second inaugural is that if I, George Washington, fail to respect the oath that I just took, subject me to constitutional punishment. And to me, you know, it sort of enshrines the modesty of the office that this is a commitment to do a job, to to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution specifically. And if you fall short of that, or if you violate it in an, in an extreme way, uh, then the result isn't, it's not like a monarch who just gets away with it and continues to act how they want it's remove me subject me to constitutional punishment impeach me remove me uh and i think too uh that what he's hinting at although it's not clear exactly from the text is that a president is not above the law and can be subject to to criminal indictment despite the arguments that you sometimes hear claiming that the president has a special sort of immunity from that um from mm. that that obligation
2: raise your right hand You, Harry S. Truman, do solemnly swear… I, Harry S. Truman, do solemnly swear… you will faithfully execute the Office of President of the United States… That I will faithfully execute the Office of President of the United States… … and will, to the best of your ability… And will, to the best of my ability… Preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States…
3: So help you God. So help me God. You know, I, I always find it kind of fascinating being a Brit looking at early American history and that period mm. where you guys are defining your system of government and your ideals and your values. And it always strikes me that you guys overplay the position of King George III. <laughs> and, <laughs> the and, and so bad. We, no, it's not that he wasn't so bad. He actually uh, yeah. wasn't so powerful. He wasn't really directing yeah. uh, British policy. It was right. it was uh, it was the government of the day. It was it was North et al. It was all of those guys. Right. Uh, and, and actually, if you were to if you were to look at uh, continental Europe in 1776, 1783, 1789, and you'd have said which is the most open. <sighs> government
1: but no I, I take the point which is there was a, a form of parliamentary constraint already happening in england and i think one of the best new books making that argument is a book by uh harvard professor eric nelson who's who makes exactly that point that you know the idea of the constraints of the office uh, were present already in england and in British parliamentary, uh, mm. you know,
3: uh, you democracy. Know, it go, but it it, I think, exactly, it goes yeah. back to the Glorious Revolution a century right. before. It goes back to the Restoration of the monarchy right. after Charles Charles the uh, First after right. you know after his execution, and and right. kind of interesting for me is looking back at the, uh, Jefferson and Franklin who both right. travelled to the UK traveled to england right. and took great solace in 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 terms of the the limits that were put on on the executive on the on the british executive when there were still british subjects and, and looked back at the glorious revolution as this kind of font of right. um, american liberty just say that you yes. guys just oh over, you overplay yeah. <laughs> this all the time you know a monarch with a nice shiny hat on their head not such a bad thing
1: well, I guess I would say this. On the one hand, it's certainly true that the idea of constitutional constraints on the president, on any state actor, has its origin in the idea of the balance of power between the parliament and, and uh, King George III and, and other British monarchs. But I do think there is a break. Uh, and so I, I, I think part company with Nelson and others who, who really push that point in the following way The American Revolution is about equality and the notion of the rejection of royalty and the notion of status distinctions at all based on birth. Mm. And even what you might think of as symbolic distinctions, and let's take, for instance, the benign establishment of the Church of England, Uh, that's rejected out of hand by Madison and then enshrined into law in our First Amendment, the the ban on the establishment of religion. And I don't think that symbols are irrelevant to um, the American creed or doctrine that comes after it. So that idea that you're a citizen if you're born here, for instance, um, the rejection of both symbols but also funding for church institutions, uh, those are fundamental not only to the break with England but to the ongoing uh, way that America defines, uh, you know, I guess constitutional democracy <laughs> but, and equality. And those aren't I, to me just Corey, symbols. Yeah.
3: Sorry. Uh, Corey, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm always struck by yeah. the power of the symbol and yeah. by the intellectual force. Yeah. Of, of the argument of, the, you know, Madison right. um, striking down his two bills. Right, um, exactly. You know, so religion could not be established in the States. And obviously exactly. that was a key Jeffersonian credo. Yes. You know, that he said, no, we're not going to have an established religion over here. Correct. Um, my country, and I don't, know, I don't do a compare and contrast all the time, <laughs> uh, but, but it is the country that I know the most, my country being the United Kingdom. Right, and we don't have an established, uh, a disestablished church. The Queen, our head of state, is the supreme head of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, the benign. Uh, yeah how how many British prime ministers uh, run for office and right. have to say that they are a Christian? Absolute zero. And actually, right, right. the one the ones that do feel a little bit odd and I compare and contrast that with your present president he was so obviously has hardly ever stepped a foot in church in his life but to run for office had to have this mock mini conversion and had to pretend, you know, he went to a couple of black churches and pretended to mouth along to, to songs and what to hymns. And, <laughs> and, and very obviously this man doesn't have a Christian bone in his body. And I don't think that that's important for him to execute the office, but it's important to you Americans. and And, and at the heart of your American experiment, which is doing yeah. pretty well for you so far. Don't get me wrong. We're
1: having a
3: little this, trouble these days. <laughs> well, maybe it's just a stress test. And, yeah. and one of the many stress tests is, is your book. You know, to, <laughs> just to remind Americans of the reason why they separated all those years ago from, from the United Kingdom. Yeah, but how, you you, you can't you, you maybe in two thousand and nineteen can conceive of somebody <laughs> running for office the highest office in the land, and saying that they are not a regular churchgoer, they're not a practicing Christian. You can conceive of it now. You couldn't before.
1: Yes, and I guess the book certainly does speak about this break with monarchy that many, not all, but many of the framers thought uh, were essential. But I guess I think the, the comparison or the use of it isn't necessarily in saying that this regime is better than the British one, which of course we're drawing so much strength from and influence both in our common law and the structure of limited government. Uh, But Mm. it's sort of a, a the use of it is internally in American politics because we, maybe more so than the history of the UK, have a deeply anti-democratic, anti-rule of law uh, strand that we have to combat. And so alongside Mm. the ban on Uh, religious establishment is a strong belief ongoing, certainly now getting stronger, that this is a Christian nation. Or uh, along our uh, our tradition of free speech, we have many leaders, the current one uh, among them, who want to ban criticism of the government. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, has proposed perhaps shutting down Saturday Night Live, the uh, show that criticizes him and that he evidently watches Uh, And so that's the use of it, I think. It's not necessarily in showing an improvement over uh, countries whose history and whose norms are sort of fit the constitutional tradition. It's in using it internally against opponents that have always really been here. I mean, in the 19th century, of course, we have the tradition of slavery that's eventually ended with the Equal Protection Clause and then a system of apartheid in a big part of the country. Now, what's the use? What's the way? of sort of getting rid of this, we can't just rely on norms and history dating back to the 18th century. It's, it's this legal tradition that kind of stands above. So I think, you know, I wouldn't want to compare the US and say in any way that our system or our history is better than the UK. Um, you know, but I, I do think that its use is in, in fighting opponents of liberal democracy, of constitutional democracy at home.
2: Dwight D. Eisenhower, do solemnly swear. I, Dwight D. Eisenhower, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States. And will to the best of your ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God.
3: To, to draw a strand from what you just said, you have sure. a president who seems to instinctively not understand that criticism of. of him, his policies, is a key part of democracy. It's a key part of um, the, the functioning um, heft of 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 america I'm right trying to think of a better way to say this but yes very much at the start of the republic you had adams right and his um alien and seditions act so right. why don't you wind us all the way back to the late 18th century set the scene for us I why th- did the second president um uh, sign into into law this act and and where has this act actually gone and what does it tell us um about america at that time
1: um, yes. I mean, as I talk about in the book, there have been moments in American history, Donald Trump is by no means the first president to disregard the oath. There have been others who have been as, as bad, certainly. And one example is the second president, John Adams, who rather than take the idea of the office seriously, including the notion of putting the law before oneself and in particular the right to criticize the president does the inverse And he signs into law uh, these acts, including a Sedition Act, um, uh, the Alien Acts, which are discrimination acts basically against uh, those um, not deemed sufficiently American, um, those coming from elsewhere. Uh, But I focus in on the Sedition Act in particular, which makes it a crime uh, to criticize the president of the United States. And just to show you what's going on with the structure of this, how partisan this legislation is, of course, the vice president at the time, uh, Thomas Jefferson, is a member of a different party than Adams. Adams is a Federalist and Jefferson, a Democratic, uh, Dem- Democratic Republican. And um, uh, what the law says is you can criticize the president, but not the vice. Uh, sorry, you can't criticize the president, but you can criticize the vice president of the United States. It's, in other words, a pure power grab by the Federalists. Uh, uh, and also it fits with Adam's understanding of himself as as monarch-like. I think he really doesn't buy uh, the idea of the break with monarchy at all, and he sees himself as entitled to a certain kind of dignity that means that he can't be uh, subject to criticism. And not only that, but he also uh, orders uh, his attorney general to uh, go after political opponents in the book. I talk about Matthew Leon, the congressman from uh, uh, from, uh, Vermont who is actually in prison for mocking Adams. Um, newspaper editors are put in jail. And so to me that has a, um, you know, maybe it doesn't reflect the power of George the but it certainly harkens back to a time of British monarchy where, where there was a crime of sedition that could result in, uh, you know, in, in pure punishment. And, and that is so roundly repudiated by the election of 1800, uh, by Jefferson and Madison and their resistance to the Alien Sedition Acts, their use of the states to proclaim the acts unconstitutional, and ultimately of the American people to vote out of office uh, the, the second president. Uh, so it's a symbol of, yes, early failings, uh, early violation of the oath of office, um, but also a reminder of, of uh, you know uh, what the creed is supposed to be, that a president should be. Subject to criticism and should welcome it, not not oppose it.
2: John Fitzgerald Kennedy do solemnly swear. I John Fitzgerald Kennedy do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will to the best of your ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United
3: States. So help me God. So help me God. So the presidency of John Adams is over in 1800. And that election is seen as uh, one of the dirtiest in in, in American history uh, with all manner of potshots taken at uh, candidates. Was it really clear back then? I know you kind of said it, it, in your answer that uh, the president was, you know, Adams wanted the president to be above naked criticism. Um, but how easy was that going to be to um, to switch off the kind of the vitriol from somebody who's running as a candidate and saying that they were sleeping with uh, sleeping with their slaves and and they were you know uh, Scottish bastards and whatever like as Hamilton was was accused to be etc. And all of a sudden they're elevated in, into the presidency. Ideologically, um, could that switch actually be made? I think presidential campaigns are
1: often very vicious and involve all manner of speaking. But to me, the difference in what Adams did as opposed to uh, what goes on during a campaign is that he tried to uh, enshrine into law, not tried to, he did enshrine into law Mm -hmm. with the help of his party, uh, a rule which said you can't criticize the president. And if you do it, you go to jail. And that uh, is different than using speech in a vicious way, attacking opponents, mm-hmm. and it really is antithetical to the consensus. And this is not a partisan view. There is no disagreement on the current Supreme Court. This would be a nine-zero case that the Alien mm-hmm. and Sedition Acts are clearly unconstitutional. Our First Amendment protects all views, and especially
3: criticizing the president. So, yeah, he he was uh, a real failure. <laughs> okay. But don't you feel that you've been a little bit hard on Adams? Because he needed to get this through Congress <laughs> and get it through the Senate. Uh, yeah, so he, yep. he he wasn't the only person in America that kind of had this view, was he? Uh, no. I mean, and,
1: you know, again, the American experiment is new. The Bill of Rights and its First Amendment is uh, only passed in the first uh, Congress. So it's it's very fresh. But mm-hmm. it was an early... You know, talk about a stress test. It was an early stress test, an early question of whether or not we were going to honor the basic requirements of that right. And he, uh, with the aid of his own party uh, and on, in all branches, so it was uh, really a partisan piece of legislation passed without support from the other party, his allies in Congress, the Federalists, and let's not forget, too, the Supreme Court, uh, including Samuel Chase, who's supposed to be an independent justice is the chief Mm -hmm. advocate or one of the chief advocates for this piece of legislation. Uh, So, you know, I know a lot of times historians try to be balanced, but I'm a constitutional lawyer, a person who is a defender of the document and who is evaluating presidents based on how well they uphold it. And so Adams, to me, uh, you know, I know he, he has his defenders. He was a very learned person, one of the most prominent uh, lawyers to, um, you know, legal minds to hold the office, and you know, up there with Wilson. Um, but like Wilson, you know, uh, uh, who also flouted uh, the office in a similar way, uh, a, a Democrat president uh, in the early 20th century, uh, mm-hmm. Adams really uh, threatened the republic, I think. Uh, and, and this election, as vicious as it was, the fact that the acts expire and really don't come back, uh, except for a brief period of time in the early 20th century, that 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 matters uh, to the development of, of American democracy. Because to me, I should say this too, and this is different from a European perspective in some ways, I don't think you can have true democracy and have limits on free speech, especially when it comes to criticism of leaders.
3: Hmm. Uh, it's good job you, you put in that little... Um qualifier at the end because uh you know there are there are many limits and many many yes, yes, there of are course, there yeah. are limits on uh free speech in the uk and i don't think any brit would say that they feel any less free than american we don't look to america and say oh my god these these guys are free you know there is uh, <laughs> there, there, there is a legal limit on uh race hate speech in the uk like there are certain things you cannot say which which are things which you can say in 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 the uk sorry in the us but then of course there is the whole analogy of you know shouting fire in 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 a cinema type of thing but anyway right you mentioned you mentioned criticism of
1: leaders in particular i guess that i'm concerned about in the early republic that's what adams tried to do Uh and didn't get away with and i think if you if you don't have that protection the ability to say to the president of the united states you're doing a terrible job or even to mock the president that i Mm. i don't i don't see how our i think our system really can slip from a democratic form of government to to a different kind and and i I don't Mm. think adams himself is uh has a constitutional view of american democracy he's got something that verges more on let's call it the bad form of of monarchy
3: again it's just kind of fascinating for me to do this um i'm doing all the things which i keep on saying i'm not going to do i'm not going to do compare and contrast i'm not going to do compare and contrast and that's exactly what i'm what i'm reaching for james gilroy was a famous british caricaturist and kind of printmaker in in roughly this period no not in roughly exactly this period and he mercilessly mocked in cartoon and caricature uh not only british prime ministers but also the monarch yeah and i suppose at the heart of my fascination with your country and its constitution and its set of norms is the belief that that you think that everything that you guys do is absolutely exceptional (laughs) and and we had lamb. You know, we have we have this really famous cartoonist lampooning the king, the head of state, the head of the executive, the prime ministers all the time, and he wasn't thrown in prison. But I want to move on from. Can the... I say just one
1: last comment about I mean, Go on. I guess I think uh, you know there are traditions that have free speech respected, but mm-hmm. without a legal guarantee. Of it. I think at least in this country, and I don't want to claim this is true of other countries with maybe a more of a stronger historic democratic tradition, I worry that there, there are continually forces that would uh, move in the direction of not respecting through norms, uh, free speech. And so, you know, the legal protection, I guess, in American politics is a sort of bolstering. And, you know, this president, I'm sorry to bring it back to the president is an example of that, I think, uh, left to his own devices without a guarantee of a court, for instance, that would stop this immediately, and he's being told that, uh, we might be in a position where we are very far from, from tolerating criticism of our, our leaders. So yeah, I think the legalistic thing here protects us in a way that mm-hmm. might not be necessary in other countries with, um, let's call it a, a stronger um, set of norms.
2: Johnson do solemnly swear I Londondon Baines Johnson do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of the presidency of the United States the office of the presidency of the United States and will to the best of your ability and will to the best of my ability preserve <laughs> protect and defend preserve protect and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help
0: me God.
3: So let's move on from the, the late 18th century, the early 19th century, to the early 20th century. And you you kind of pushed us in the direction of Wilson, um, a yeah. president who you said kind of brought uh, to the office uh, not only the bully pulpit, but an obligation to uphold the oath. Mm. Um, all right, he, 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 here's my thinking on this, right? And I haven't written a weighty tome which literally needed uh, two UPS fans to deliver it to my house. So, right, you, 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 you know, you've written the big book and you've done all the research. It's all right. only 60,000 words. <laughs> 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 which one did they send you? <laughs> you might have gotten the adam's complete works or something <laughs> <laughs> it, it, had, it had your name on it sir and, uh, and with an orange cover so i'm i'm guessing it guessing it was your book but maybe the maybe the print the type was very big hence all the pages. <laughs> It did have uh, some good stories in it too, right? I, I, it's no, not it's a... it's, it's, no, no, no. Listen, I, I, I took it to bed with me most nights, had a very good time with it, had a very good read with it. So so I thank you for that. Um, okay, thank you. Before we come on to um, the obligation to uphold the oath. Yes. Uh, Wilson... So, you say that uh, Wilton expands the presidency and he kind of gives a constitutional argument for the notion that the president is a first amongst, amongst equals. Right. If you take um, kind of the, the long, the traditional view of the American presidency, the imperial presidency kind of starts with. Theodore Roosevelt, doesn't it? That he seems to galvanize a a force of personality, yes, and other kind of constitutional uh, norms to 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 remodel the American presidency. And is really what we're talking about there, which you kind of say that uh, Wilson. Is a really good example of this, you know, it's the first among, e- first among equals. Is this really because of new technology? Because it's not by accident, is it, that by the time we get to Theodore Roosevelt, we can hear the voices of presidents. They, they were on acetate, they were on vinyl. It was the start of radio, okay, a little bit after uh, Wilson, maybe. Um, this is a time of near-universal, literacy so that people could read newspapers Mm. is this uh consolidation of presidential power really just a natural concurrence to do with modern technology modern communication technologies or is this some kind of redefining slight withering of of uh the constitution and the office of the presidency
1: Yeah, I think it's a convergence of forces. I certainly wouldn't discount everything that you said. I think that's an important part of it. And especially since the way that the power is consolidated by uh, Theodore Roosevelt and and sort of solidified by Wilson is uh, speech. Uh, You know, there's sort of a tradition um, about uh, how presidents are going to conduct themselves. And the notion in particular, you see this in those Washington speeches, Uh, that I'm talking about, he's really addressing himself uh, to Congress and talking about what he owes Congress and that bit about Mm -hmm. constitutional punishment is him saying, you know, to to the House, really, if I violate the oath, you know, you have a mechanism to do something about it, which is subject me to constitutional punishment, that second inaugural. And I think the difference that corresponds to the technological uh, creation that you're talking about is No longer am I going to talk to the other branches. I'm going to talk to the American people and I'm going to galvanize them to back my pieces of legislation, whether it's in the Roosevelt case about, um, you know, safety of things like food and um, um, – or later uh, with uh, Wilson, things like the – argument the unsuccessful argument for the League of Nations but it's it's that I think that is a sort of difference in constitutional approach between I'm going to work with Congress to pass bills I'm gonna you know either be equal or maybe even slightly subservient to the uh, will of Congress which is the law, lawmaking body to know I'm really going to step out in front and use this technology to uh, create an independent kind of power and I think what Wilson, what makes Wilson different um, from Roosevelt is that he is, you know, teaching constitutional law at Princeton. He is certainly one of the preeminent constitutional law scholars in the country. So he should have he known uses better. He, yeah, he should have. He did know better, I think. <laughs> and, um, and he's also, you know, I guess I'm also not naive in the sense that I don't, I admire Washington, of course but I don't think we're going to go back to uh president not speaking to the nation or uh, subsuming his or herself to Congress, but it's the convergence of that beginning of the Imperial presidency with the racism of Wilson and really the outright uh, arrogance of it's not just racism. It's celebrating the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, there are historians, I've seen a lot of popular historians, for instance, trying to underplay the fact that he shows Birth of a Nation in the White House. And they say, you know, he didn't really know what was in it. He shows it, and and it's not a big deal. It's not really him defending racism at, in the office. And I, I just think that's false. As I say in the book, the film quotes him twice at length from his own work celebrating the, the Klan and its racism. And then that corresponds, too, to actions that he – Takes within uh, the executive power to resegregate, for instance, the federal workforce. So it, it isn't a sort of by the way thing. And it isn't that he's unaware of Justice Harlan's dissent, for instance, in Plessy versus Ferguson saying that we truly have a colorblind constitution. It's that he's actively choosing to support the extreme right, the view of the Ku Klux Klan. And he's really converging. Uh, the danger of the newfound powers of the president uh, with forces that are really against the equal protection uh, guarantee that all Americans are supposed to have regardless of race. And and that's why he really is, to me, uh, a symbol of a, a dangerous um, and, and uh, in many ways failed president.
2: You, Richard Milhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear... I, Richard Bilhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States of President of the United States and will to the best of your ability and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God.
3: So we've just had the State of the Union address where we have this incredibly, at least by American standards anyway, incredibly diverse intake of new congressmen and women. And all of the Democratic women were wearing white to mm. to in recognition of 100 years of women's suffrage that was implemented by Wilson wasn't it you know can we should we damn this man who was i think we can say by the standards of uh, 2019 a racist somebody mm. who systematically tried to block and to get rid of any black federal employees but can we completely uh, throw away the fact that under his administration, women were given the vote? He hmm. was somebody who tried uh, to uh, prevent World War II by yes. having uh, yeah. the League of Nations, a, a very far-sighted president in many ways.
1: Yes, yeah, and I think, you know, we've got to tolerate the ambiguity, certainly. I, I agree with all of those things. I mean, women's suffrage... He gets some credit, but of course there's a movement behind it that he's not getting in the way of. So I, I don't know how much credit he gets for that, that counterbalances. Um, but, you know, I guess I would add to the, the criticism of him to the concern about um, uh, that we're talking about race. And, you know, exactly as you put it, he he is by far and away a racist for his time. Celebrating the Klan is not the norm of American politics uh, it's, it's still, even at that period of time, the, um, uh, a, 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 a version of right wing racialism, racism that, um, you know, is rejected by much of the country. But the other thing is the Adams like, uh, quality of him, you know, this is also a time of the red scare and, uh, um, you know, permissive Supreme court, uh, and, you know, he supports the prosecution of people running for office who he deems too left. And uh, so that's another uh, big minus uh, in my book. <laughs> but, yes, I take your point, too, that, you know, he he sort of creates in many ways the modern presidency. And, and there are things that we can praise him for as well. Well, I guess one thing I will point out that I think is uh-huh. different from my approach than many historians is I really think that the, to me, in evaluating a president, the thing that comes first is the minimum requirement is did they respect the oath? And so that's why he fails in a way that he might not, if you have other um, criteria, for instance, you know, how powerful was.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the powers of the presidency, which is uh, ri- written in into the constitution is the idea that um, if there is an emergency, he has uh, extrajudicial powers
1: well that's not in our constitution in my understanding anyway there's a debate about it I guess I would say okay well,
3: well yeah. let, let's first off <laughs> let's go to the example that you use yeah which is the one which is always cited, which is Youngstown uh, against uh, Truman. And then um, expand on the argument, because obviously this is extremely prescient right now. There is the question Mm. of, is this constitutional? Let's deal with the example in 1952, and then then, let's talk about the academic argument as to whether the president can or should actually enforce emergency powers.
1: Yes, exactly. Great. Um, so, I mean, I would say that certainly there are people who believe that the constitution enables the president in an emergency to act, uh, during wartime, for instance, in a way that otherwise, um, in normal periods of time, uh, a president couldn't act. Uh, to me, the best refutation of the idea that the president has inherent emergency powers, uh, is found in the Youngstown case in the, um, Main opinion, but also in the concurrence by Justice Jackson, who had been the American prosecutor uh, in the Nuremberg trials and what Jackson says in that opinion is that unlike the Weimar Constitution, for instance, that the American Constitution has no and certainly his right textually no no textually granted emergency powers, and he says really it doesn't have inherent emergency powers at all, and in wartime or in peacetime. Uh, The president's power is at its lowest point when Congress says that a president can't act. So in that case, let's just explain what happened to the listeners for those who don't know it. President Truman decides during the Korean War that steel production is uh, not as strong as it needs to be. And when there is a strike in these uh, steel mills throughout the country, he says, I need to use my emergency powers through executive order to take over these mills to stop the strike and to get steel production going. And in this Supreme Court opinion, the question is, does the president have these wartime uh, emergency powers? And the answer is no, because Congress considered granting him these powers and then explicitly um, uh, and implicitly uh, decided to deny them. And the the, the main opinion, the opinion by Jackson uh, says, you know, sorry, Mr. Truman, uh, you, you know, this is far from Hitler or the takeover of um, a country by a fascist regime. I mean, Jackson had worked for uh, Truman and was in many ways a fan, uh, but also wanted to lay down this idea that a president is constrained by the law, even in a, um, uh, plausibly in that case, in an emergency. I mean, it wasn't that he was making this up about steel production. So when we go to the present time, to me, certainly a constitutional argument for emergency powers is Dubious, And I think, too, the opinion still is the law of the land. And we have to look to whether or not Congress has um, allowed for the building of the wall or not or prohibited it. And, my, you know, there's an argument that there are statutes passed since Youngstown that do grant this p- president power to do that, not, not based in the Constitution, but based in statutory law. And an emergency powers act, for instance, passed in the 1970s. But the better of the argument to me is still that Youngstown argument. The Congress considered granting this ability to build the wall and and decided not to.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
2: Are you prepared to take the Constitutional oath? I am. You place your left hand on the Bay of Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me, I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear... I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear... ...that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States... ...that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States... ...and will, to the best of my ability... ...and will, to the best of my ability... ...preserve, protect, and defend... Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God.
3: But one of the things which I kind of found really, really interesting in your, in your book and is going kind to of crystallize in, into one of your points, and we kind of mentioned this before, at least I did anyway, was uh, kind of the hiring and firing. Mm. And it's something which uh, you say that Wilson and FDR did so at will. And specifically to do with Wilson, Wilson's reputation um, has has really taken a tumble. Um, Mm. In the time that I went to school, we learned about the First World War. He was always seen as not quite the great liberator, because you, you, you Americans just swanned in at the last minute and mm. uh, just, had a, uh, just had a couple of battles. But, but you were seen as a breath of fresh air in those peace negotiations. And, and really, that was Wilson, wasn't it? It, was, it? This was a new way of looking at the world. We had this massive cataclysm yes uh, which which had bestrode uh, the planet or in Europe anyway and he was somebody with bold new ideas and people kind of rallied to that and that was definitely the uh, what i read in those history books in the 1980s when i was at uh, secondary school or high mm. school as you would call it in america and and his mm. reputation has massively taken at a tumble since um, yes. not only because of um his uh kind of quite naked kind of racist attitudes but explain to us how the oath and the you know the pledge to the nation protects civil servants mm. and and then um, independent prosecutors etc again um as a brit i say well yeah. We, we kind of have this, and uh, Theresa May doesn't get, put a hand on a Bible and and, and have this <laughs> oath. And we have a functioning civil service which is independent from the executive. And I'm guessing the French, the Spanish, the Germans, the Italians uh, kind of say the same. And I, I I appreciate that those countries have a very different 20th century history when it comes to um, civil governance. Mm. But um, you know they've arrived. At a place which I don't think is going to be that, that too different from, from the United States. So, mm. okay, so tell me um, why Wilson and FDR uh, w- were bad, what yeah. they did, and, and how, because of the, the oath in, in office, how um, that has uh, prevented the executive can't blanch just putting its friends in crony positions.
1: First, I should say I wanted to say something about Wilson, and I had a similar sort of trajectory with him where, um, I was a graduate student at Princeton where he was revered and taught as the internationalist. Many things are named after him. I was actually very proud to be married in the former house that he lived in. And so I've learned all this since. <laughs> so I also uh-huh. am with you in having a yeah. big tumble, uh, from, uh, being a big fan to being a, a skeptic. Um, the other place where he, um, uh, I don't know if this. I would con- condemn him in the way that I would for the speech and and uh, uh, and the racism, the, the failure to respect free speech and his racism. Uh, it's a more nuanced area, but it, it's an important one. And it's one in which I think um, the constitution in many ways and its setup might make the United States more vulnerable to manipulation by a bad president than many European countries, where there is a, a kind of tradition of protecting the civil service. And the argument that Wilson makes, basically there's a postmaster general that he wants to fire, and he's supposed to get consent according to the law at the time uh, of the Senate if he wants to be able to uh, to fire this civil servant, um, uh, uh, you know, a way of protecting civil servants. And, you know, there's a long history of, of laws protecting civil servants, but he says, I'm the president of the United States, it's part of this imp- move to the imperial presidency, and I have the right as president to fire my employees. And these members of the executive branch, including the postmaster general, are my uh, employees. And the Supreme Court agrees with them, the sort of master constitutional argument, you know, he directs, um, uh, he, he, he carries out this firing, uh, and uh, the Supreme Court agrees with them. Now, the danger of that so precedent... wasn't wrong then,
3: then, was he, Corey?
1: I don't think that's the danger that, that one move. but now here, moving up to FDR oh, okay. and uh, the modern point, um, the extreme version of the Wilsonian argument, and I, I don't think that necessarily he had this in mind, but this is where it could be taken, would say that all civil servants are subject to the firing, uh, to firing by the President of the United States... Uh, at will, and for any reason. And you see where this starts to be a danger when the civil servants are the ones who are in charge of investigating wrongdoing uh, within the executive branch. And so after Watergate, you know, the decision is made um, to create an office where if the president or people close to the president are accused of criminal acts, if they're Suspected of criminal acts that they are immune from firing by a president who wants to just protect him or herself. And the thought was, you know, Nixon was in this position uh, where Nixon had had, you know, fired uh, essentially uh, an attorney general, uh, his cabinet official who refused to fire um, uh, uh, the person who was looking into his possible crimes. So Elliot Richardson, the attorney general, refuses to fire Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor at the time. So Nixon just fires Richardson and then uh, fires uh, the deputy who takes over until Mr. Bork, later Judge Bork, takes that office and agrees to fire Cox. Now, after that, the thought was, you know, maybe this has gotten out of hand, the Wilsonian idea that the president can fire whoever he or she wants for any reason, even if that person is investigating the president's own wrongdoing. And so Congress passes this kind of anti-Wilsonian law, uh, that relies actually on a case from the time of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, where the court did say, actually, Congress can create protections for civil servants that even a president can't un- undo, and in, especially in positions where it's essential that there be a kind of independence. And the Supreme Court upholds this law, the independent prosecutor law. Now, it's since expired, and we're back to the system of, um, that Nixon was in. And, and frankly, there is no protection uh, for this investigation under our constitution, my belief is that if the president wants to fire his attorney general who refused to fire Mr. Mueller, that that constitutionally that actually probably is prohibited. Be, I mean, probably a- allowed. Um, uh, uh, and um, you know, we're in a sort of position where the imperial presidency uh, has no uh, direct legal oversight, and and that does trace a sort of origin. Uh, to this more, uh, you know, more benign uh, argument about this kind of inconsequential postmaster general.
3: Surely, the safeguard against a president doing that actually is politics, isn't it? Right here and now, it would be catastrophically uh, a move of gross incompetence for uh, this president. And I use him just purely as an example mm. to get rid of Robert Mueller, and and do. So I suppose my question is: Do we really need um, a law, or an act, when you have political common sense mm. um, as as, as, a, right. as a backstop? Right,
1: and um, you know that's what the defenders of the current system say. And they say Congress, after all, can exercise its oversight powers as well. Uh, But my worry is that, you know, politics depends on the moment. And uh, I I don't know where we are, frankly, politically at this moment. Uh, Could the president of the United States, with a new attorney general uh, confirmed by the Senate, I mean, when that happens, um, uh, who's respected because of his role in the Bush administration, replay The Saturday Night Massacre in a way that actually has a completely different result, namely that the current president gets away with the firing and faces no consequences. Uh, I'm just not sure. I mean, what what really ultimately stopped Nixon was the threat of impeachment and uh, a court that was willing to intervene to demand that the subsequent um, special counsel be allowed to subpoena the Watergate tapes. Those all, to me, don't seem like inevitable historical outcomes. And so I'm just not confident that the previous um, example is the one that would guide us now. And frankly, this president uh, and his allies have said the problem with Nixon was that he was too weak. He didn't fight hard enough. He did step down. And, uh, you know, that lesson, I'm I'm not sure that they're wrong.
2: Would you please raise your right hand and repeat after me? I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve protect and defend the constitution of the united states so help me god so help me god
3: so we, we start we're starting to get to some of the main kind of tenants uh, of your book but i suppose the biggie is impeachment and yes. the role that that plays in censoring a president and i and i think there, there's lots of uh, misunderstanding about actually what impeachment is. Uh, people think that uh, if a president gets impeached and if he's found guilty he automatically gets booted out of office and that's not a call not at all the case. Correct. Uh, but give, give us um, a quick history on impeachment but then specifically with the views on impeachment uh, specifically somebody like Frederick Douglass who uh, was kind of horrified at uh, President Andrew Johnson just after the Civil War, and the way that he was treating kind of a a recalcitrant uh, South. So what is impeachment, a history of
1: impeachment? Sure. The, The Constitution sets up a specific system of what Washington called constitutional punishment that is really political. This isn't a judicial process, and it's not a judicial standard, although it's often misunderstood as one. If a majority of the House of Representatives and decides to vote to impeach, or it's the equivalent of indict president on specific grounds. That begins uh, and goes to the Senate for a uh, what resembles a trial, but again, it is an illegal process. Um, and the, the, if the Senate decides, and considering the charges or the the impeachment brought by the House, uh, uh, that two thirds of senators decide that they are they are uh, the charges are warranted. Uh, A two-thirds vote uh, results in the removal uh, of a president from office and the end, really, of that presidency. And the Constitution explains what the standard is supposed to be. Uh, Both the House and the Senate are supposed to ask the question of whether or not the sitting president of the United States has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, that sounds like a legal standard, so why did I say it's not a legal process? Uh, there is no uh, thing in uh, the criminal law that's no category of the criminal law that's uh, called high crime. Uh, it's meant to convey, I think, a different idea that phrase, uh, which is really a violation of the terms of office, the violation of the oath to preserve, protect, And defend the Constitution. But the history of impeachment is sort of a back and forth between what I've just said and a more legalistic way of seeing it. So uh, President Johnson, and this follows on our discussion about hiring and firing, uh, disregarded a requirement at the time uh, that said that he had to, um, that he couldn't on his own, uh, just fire his Secretary of War. Uh, He wants to fire the Secretary of War, a holdover from the Lincoln administration, uh, and and just does it without consulting uh, the Senate. Now, uh, impeachment charges are brought against him, uh, largely focusing on that act and why it's illegal and he's disregarded the the letter of the law by uh, engaging in this firing. But Frederick Douglass at the time, the orator, the the, uh, abolitionist, the uh, civil rights advocate, Um, uh, makes what I think is an important correction to the way that the Senate and the House are conducting this investigation. Uh, And the uh, correction is this. Uh, He says, let's call Johnson out uh, for an impeachable offense uh, that is actually common sense. Namely, he's an opponent of the end of slavery. He's failing to enforce the 13th Amendment. He's traveling around the country making vile racist speeches and uh, that's the reason why he should be impeached and removed from office. Uh, nothing to do really uh, with this secretary of war firing. Um, uh, and what I say in the book, you know, first of all, given what we just were saying about Wilson, it might be in retrospect that the, the, the firing by a cabinet official, uh, by the president, is constitutional under the Myers precedent. Um, That case, of course, hadn't been decided at the time, but he might have been within his rights to do it. I think he probably was. So I'm actually taken with the um, Frederick Douglass argument that this isn't a legal process. Let's not pretend it is. Let's call it what it is and say that this president, speaking at least uh, in his time, uh, President Johnson, has uh, disregarded the oath. and, um, uh, And it's the racism and the failure to end slavery to Uh, faithfully execute the laws, like Washington says, a failure of the oath that warrants uh, his impeachment.
3: Is it a failure of the oath or is it the failure to uphold the mores of of the time? It seems to me that this is a a movable standard, Mm, really. And there there is something to be said for objectively saying, um, you cannot do this, you cannot do that, And that's just written in some kind of tablet of stone. And then if that's transgressed, but to say that somebody has exhibited some behavior of which people at the time do not like, well, we all know that, you know, habits and, uh, you know, mores change over time.
1: I think he's saying something in between. I don't think it's simply that he's an immoral president. And so, you know, the president, uh, might, be drinking a lot, for instance, and some people mm-hmm. might find that immoral. That's not oh, an impeachable offense. You're talking
3: about event. Ulysses Grant, now, <laughs> Right. There are <laughs> many
1: presidents. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't think that's what he – I know that's not what he's saying. And he's also not saying let's look at the letter of the law. He did something illegal here. I think what he's saying, the in-between position is you know there are very specific things under the oath of office that the president is supposed to do, and one of them is to faithfully execute the law. And it isn't just that it's immoral to bring back slavery. It's that the 13th Amendment, which after all, they had just fought a war to enact basically and had, mm. had gone through the process of amendment, very difficult process. Lincoln doesn't just rely on um, the Emancipation Proclamation or an executive order. He goes and seeks the constitutional process. And then for this president to come in and really just sort of not only failed to you know, stop uh, Ongoing slavery, but to sort of speak in this deeply racist way against the ideas of anti-subordination that had just been enshrined into law—that that's a constitutional violation. Now, can he go to jail for failing to execute the law? No, it's not a criminal offense, uh, but it's not just a moral one either. It's it's that there is mm-hmm. a failure in the duties of office. That that to me is Douglas's point, and you know, as you know, I agree with it, and and that's why I put the oath. Uh, central and want to put it back into the um, back into the uh, way that we evaluate uh, historical presidents.
3: Why, why do you think we get so excited about impeachment, the threat of impeachment, possible impeachment, the whiff of impeachment? because ultimately all it is is a slap on the wrist at best.
1: Well, it's the end of a presidency. I think um in a way it, it's more parliamentary. <laughs> I'd like to I guess what I'm recommending is it's not quite a no confidence vote, but uh, as your um no confidence votes were were being considered uh, in regard to uh Teresa May's um uh uh continuing as prime minister. I thought, you know, these are very different processes in some ways, but in some ways what Douglas is saying, let's not make it as big a deal <laughs> as it is. Let's not pretend it's a criminal offense. Let's say it's Mm. a failure of this leader to do the job. Um, And um, I think maybe because I don't know why it's seen as as a bigger deal than that, but it's probably the term high crime suggests that there's a condemnation of this president, not just an end of their presidency. But I think what Douglas is really saying is, look, you know, this is a job that has to be done. And if you really fail in it in the way that this Johnson has, we need to end this presidency please raise your right hand and repeat after me.
0: I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute the Office of President of the United States. the Office of President of the United States. and will to the best of my ability and will to the best of my ability, preserve,
2: protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend
1: the Constitution of the United States. the
2: Constitution of the United States. So help you God, so help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, thank you so much. Thank you, you speaker.
3: It's been fascinating to speak to you and to go through some of the important parts of how the office has evolved. The book is called "The Oath and the Office." How long did it take you to write it?
1: I started. I'd say a year and a half, uh, maybe two years. I start. I have to date it, but I wrote a piece during the campaign for uh president um uh between uh, when donald trump was running basically called trump versus the constitution outlining mm-hmm. why at least candidate trump's proposals uh in many ways violated the constitution and my thought was you know this can't just be about one president we have to reflect on the nature of the office and think more generally historically and return to that washingtonian idea that the primary thing that matters for a president is whether or not they're willing to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And so, yeah, that prompted this uh, much more historical inquiry.
3: It, it is a question which uh, I think is probably somewhat childlike on, on my part, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It might not make the edit, if <laughs> you just say. That's a totally ridiculous question. That's usually and, the and, best and, one, and, so. and, and, and you shame me. <laughs> it, it, if I'm going to promise to uphold the constitution how can i sign into law any amendment to it
1: it's a very good question actually and that the answer is that the amendment process is part of the content of the constitution and what it says is i think it would be a violation of a president to say you know what as johnson did i don't like this 13th amendment thing i want to go back to the pre-civil war constitution that you can't do uh but the constitution is very clear that if there's something in it uh that you want to change you know that's open t- to do uh and the history of american democracy is often the history of uh using that amendment process uh to to uh yeah to change the law so um the income tax uh is one example or the expansion of the suffrage uh and the framers believed they weren't perfect they they were not infallible and they trusted uh future supermajorities at least uh to amend even the most basic parts of our constitution. Now there are some parts that you, there's one part in particular uh that you can't amend and uh that's the uh requirement that the Senate be made up of two uh two members from each state. So there there's one limit, but aside from that uh the framers trusted us to uh to use that process. So I think a, a president who Uh, Pushes for an amendment, uh, as we we talked about, for instance, uh, Wilson and the suffrage. uh, Mm -hmm. That 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 is certainly within the bounds of the office.
3: Corey, thank you for coming on to Mid Atlantic to explain exactly how the oath has helped keep the uh, president to hold him to account to the American people and to explain the evolution of the powers of the office so i've been speaking to corey brett schneider who's written the book the oath and the office a guide to the constitution for future presidents how's that
1: thank you so much it's been a pleasure to speak with you and uh, what great questions and uh, i love delving deeply into that history
0: please raise your right hand and repeat after me i donald john trump do solemnly swear I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States
2: the office of President of the United States
0: and will, to the best of my ability
2: and will, to the best of my ability
0: preserve, protect, and defend preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the
2: United States. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations.
0: (laughs) Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side
2: hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers.